0: Hello and welcome to No Character Limit. My name is Robert Thurk, and today I'm going to share with you episode 13 of my book entitled Ultima Thule, Unraveling the Unknown. In both episode 13 and 14, I'm going to cover the entirety of Chapter 7, called 100,000 Years of Diaspora. Over the last several chapters of this book, I have spent a lot of time introducing the three powerful Milankovitch cycles, the precession, the obliquity, and the eccentricity And really tried to show you how they have impacted the Earth in a variety of ways, and also how we've cultivated the evidence to know that they have. But knowing the science alone isn't really good for anything unless we're going to apply it to something that we want to understand. And so, this and the next episode, what I really thought it would be interesting to look at is the last 100,000 years of human history, just one eccentricity cycle, really, and human development through that time. Questions like, when did humans actually leave Africa for the first time? How do we know? And how solid is the evidence around it? And when I looked into it, there's actually a lot of interesting answers that you wouldn't have expected. If you've ever done one of those ancestry tests and found out that you were part Neanderthal, which is actually most people on the planet, this story is about your deep ancient ancestors. And for most of us on this planet, that is what today's story is all about. If you've ever felt a connection to your family heritage, whether it's your parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, or somebody deep in history that maybe was famous, that you know you're a descendant of, this is a story about most people's on Earth's ancestors going back 100,000 years. But I want to say before we get into this episode that this whole episode has a lot of speculation in it from me. I do take all of the information I provide to you from reputable sources. There's going to be information on genetics and archaeology that I get straight from scientific news outlets and really reputable sources, and I'm fairly confident on those things. But because 100,000 years is a long time and it's hard to know specifics, I put in a little bit of speculation on what might have happened in these different scenarios, but I hope as you listen, you can hear where the speculation is versus where the facts are. I'm not trying to push an agenda, and it is very likely, since I am not an archaeologist and I am not a geneticist, that I am likely to get something or multiple things wrong. But yet, at the same time, I couldn't find a story out there that really tried to paint this picture of what the last 100,000 years was like in such a succinct form. If you actually go to the experts, there are a lot of nuance and details that make this story come to light a lot more. I'm going to use a much broader brush. But even so, this episode's going to go a little long, because there is a lot of information to share. Right off the bat, I want to acknowledge that I likely switched up the terms haplotype and haplogroup in this episode multiple times. When I look at the definition of each of them, I do understand there's a distinction there, but... I hope for what I'm trying to share with you today that distinction is not a make or break kind of an error I'm making to get a broader point across. If there's anything I've gotten wrong, or if there's more information that you might have that Actually, fills in some of these gaps where my speculation is. I'd be happy to have it. I find trying to trace the last 100,000 years of human history really interesting. And so I think I've covered my bases. You know, as I've said in the very first episode of No Character Limit, I am not an expert in anything that I talk about, but it is instead something that I found interesting and have cultivated information on that I wanna share and put out there to hopefully even generate more interest and dialogue over these things. So just to kind of give you an idea on how this and the next episode are gonna go, I'm gonna cover roughly about 100,000 years ago, to roughly 50,000 years ago in this episode, whereas in the next episode, I'm going to focus on the last 50,000 years, closer to when we exist today. And I'm going to put a heavy focus on how the first people made it over to the Western Hemisphere and populated North and South America for the first time and share some really interesting information that I discovered on that. So I hope you can appreciate that over the next couple of episodes, I try and share a story about our collective human history that I haven't really found in a similar way anywhere else. So I hope I covered my bases on how this and the next episode are a little bit more speculative in nature, but I want to get into it. So if you've really been enjoying this series, please like, rate, or review it. Tell a friend. Just help spread the word about it. If you'd like a copy of Ultima Thule, you can always give a donation, because with each donation, I give a free PDF copy of the book, and you no longer have to wait for all the upcoming episodes. I keep a social media account at Limit at mastodon.world. And you can always reach out to me at NoCharacterLimit Limit at protonmail.com. Now please enjoy parts one and two of chapter seven: 100,000 Years of Diaspora. Chapter 7, 100,000 Years of Diaspora Part 1, Out of Africa, The First Failed Attempts Is there something inside of us humans that still keeps track of these deep-season Milankovitch cycles, even though we can't live near long enough to fully experience them? At first, it seems impossible, but species like the cicada, which only live for a month but somehow lay dormant for as many as 17 years, indicates that it's not so crazy to be shaped by seasons much greater than a single lifespan. Humans can also be impacted by seasons much longer than our lifespan without us ever truly comprehending their impact on our development. While the impact of the Milankovitch cycles on human development may not be programmed in quite the way years are programmed into cicadas, they have played a significant role in our evolutionary development. For example, the Milankovitch Cycles have definitively impacted the human migration out of Africa. Homo sapiens have been around for at least 200,000 years, most of it in the southern part of Africa. As we have seen about every 20,000 years, the procession turns the Sahara green and draws all sorts of plants and animals from the southern part of the continent into the new northern grasslands, including humans and our human-like cousins Homo heidelbergensis, Homo erectus, and Homo neanderthalensis, none of which exist anymore. When the northern portion of the continent became more hospitable, the connection to Mediterranean Europe and the Middle East became accessible. A whole new world beyond the cradle of humanity. When the Milankovitch cycles turn the Sahara green, it's like a brief window of time opens up for species to trek beyond Africa. As long ago as 106,000 to 94,000 years ago, a first wave of humanity pushed out of Africa, right around the same time as the structures of Arcan-8 appeared about one eccentricity cycle ago. This coalescence of evidence can lead to enticing speculation on why humanity chose that time 106,000 to 94,000 years ago, to finally leave Africa. It is exactly during this time frame that ice cores, geological records, and Milankovitch mathematics tell us that the Sahara was in one of its humid stages, turning the vast desert region into a land of savannas, lakes, and rivers. Archaeologists exploring Eight indicate that humans lived here during the unusually long Green Period. It is an ancient rhyme to what happened between 10,000 and 5,000 years ago when settlements like Goboro were home to people like the Kiphians and the Tenarians. Eight could be a distant Goboro, home to some of the earliest settlements built by people drawn into this ancient green Sahara. It's possible that Arcanate existed before the 12,000-year window that the green corridor of the Sahara was open, but it seems unlikely. This humid Sahara caused by the Milankovitch Cycles was over twice as long as typical, giving 7,000 additional years on top of the average 5,000 to entice humans from the south to come and depend on the region for survival. This would give every reason for those who built the structures and made the tools at Arkan 8 to have been here during this time of Saharan Bounty. But just as it did 5,000 years ago, the Sahara would dry up as a result of the changing Milankovitch cycles 94,000 years ago. And again, just like 5,000 years ago, this would have had a massive impact on all life living in the region as year after year, Decade after decade, and century after century, the Sahara became more dry and sparse, pushing people out of the region. Paleoclimatologist Peter de Menical of Columbia University likens the impact of the Milankovitch cycles on the Sahara to a pump and valve where the green, humid Sahara drew life and people into the region, but that the increasingly cold and dry climate would have the effect of pushing life and people back out. While most would retreat to the warm and wet incubator of Africa, some would find themselves on the other side of the Sahara in the colder and more arid regions of Arabia across the Red Sea and the eastern coast of the Mediterranean. Some human remains in Israel provide circumstantial evidence that this pump and valve really did take place. One cave, known as Kafze has human remains that are 92,000 years old. The fact that they are found to be dated only 2,000 years after the 12,000-year-long window of the Green Sahara hints that their ancestors found their way north of the Sahara and no longer could travel through it for a couple thousand years. It's no surprise that, after having a green corridor open for that long between Africa and Asia, that some small groups would find themselves locked on the other side of the Sahara. Cut off from the rest of their species back in the mother continent, the people of Kafse had found themselves living in increasingly arid and colder climates throughout the generations blocked by a desert from returning the direction their ancestors had come many generations before them, likely unaware that they even came from there to begin with. The Kafze cave would have been a refuge in an increasingly stark landscape over centuries, an unforgiving climate that humans had not yet adapted to. The remains at Kafse Cave provide potential evidence of the pump and valve of the Milankovitch cycles in action around 94,000 years ago. But they are not the oldest remains found outside of Africa. Other human remains have been found in another Israeli cave called School, and even more have been found as far east as Saudi Arabia, both archeological sites dating back to somewhere between 115,000 and 125,000 years ago. Although less than 500 miles away from Egypt, The human remains found in the caves of school in Israel are the earliest human remains found outside of Africa that date back to this time period, roughly one eccentricity cycle ago. Although there is nearly the same amount of time between the people of Kafse and the people of school as there are between us today, and the people of Dolni Vestonice, a near-full procession year, roughly 26,000 years, making them totally unrelated to each other, despite their proximity. Knowing that it is primarily the procession cycle that opens and closes the pump and valve of the humid Sahara, is it by chance that within 30 miles of each other lay the remains of two separate human groups that lived outside of Africa a procession cycle apart? Perhaps the people of Kafse were destined to die off from the misfortune of a wrong turn by their ancestors when the Sahara began to slip back to desert. One fateful day, one group walked south, while the other walked north, and thousands of years later, the people of Kafse eked out an existence in a harsh and cold climate, before dying off completely, never knowing the kinder lands that lay to the south. And what if they were repeating the same grisly pattern that the even more ancient people of school did tens of thousands of years before them? Another wrong turn north by a people who were adapted to survive in the warm and wet lands of Africa, only to die off in a landscape that our ancestors weren't suited for. Thousands of years passed. Another greenway opens up in the Sahara, and another group gets stuck in the cold, dry north, and dies. Both the people of Kafse and School lived in much the same way. Gathering shells from the nearby Mediterranean to make jewelry, they buried their dead and cared for their weak and infirmed. They did what we still do one eccentricity year later, because they were us, genetically the same species. We can't know for sure whether these two distinct but separate groups fell victim to the pump and valve of the Sahara to end up along the Mediterranean, but the possibility is tantalizing but just because we only found some remains of the earliest non-Africans, it doesn't mean they died out in the colder realms of the Levant. The descendants of the school people may have noticed a warming and a greening in the Sahara on one of their more distant trips south, and they may have moved back down into Africa once again mixing back into humanity's myriad gene pool, making them indistinguishable from the rest of humanity. And when the descendants of the Kafse people saw the same opportunity many thousands of years later, they too could have returned back to the Sahara and intermingled with their distant cousins from the south. Although, thousands of years may have passed between these first non-African humans and their trip back to Africa, they were still genetically identical to their long-lost southern brethren, so we would never know whether they died off or returned back to Africa. How far these most ancient non-African humans pressed out into the rest of the world outside of their home continent is not truly known. The lack of Asian archaeological digging sites makes it even more difficult to know, especially as these places would become home to some of the largest and most ancient civilizations, giving plenty of opportunities to destroy evidence of any eccentricity old remains. These would ultimately be the same lands of Babylonia, Assyria, and Sumer, and undoubtedly thousands of years of ancient civilization would complicate any older archaeological discoveries regardless of whether they died off in the Levant or returned to Africa. One thing that is known for certain about these earliest people to leave Africa, whether they be the people of school, kafsa, or an even older group, is that none of these groups would go on to populate the rest of the world. That still wouldn't come for Tens of thousands of years later. But how do we know that? If all that we had were the remains at places like school and Kafse, then we should be able to argue that these remains are the remains of the earliest non-African ancestors. Alone, archaeology only tells us so much. And it was geneticists, not archaeologists, who were able to prove that these ancient non Africans were not the rest of the world's ancestors. Chapter 7, Part 2 The Mystery of the L3 haplotype. Our genes have their own internal clocks that keep time with the same precision that the heavens do. A genetic marker known as mitochondrial haplotype L3 has revealed that All non-African people can trace their origin out of Africa to a single exodus event. The widest range that this single out-of-Africa event occurred happened between 50,000 and 75,000 years ago, while more narrow windows put it between 50,000 and 55. 5,000 years ago. Regardless, genetic evidence shows that whether you are the descendant of an Incan, Haudenosaunee, Inuit, Japanese, Chinese, Maori, Arab, Indian, Russian, or European, all of these groups share this same L3 haplotype, making All non-Africans share a small group of ancestors in common. Even many Africans share this same genetic marker too, which connects most people on Earth to this genetic bottleneck that occurred at least 50,000 years ago. Those who do not have this L3 haplotype are strictly sub-Saharan Africans whose ancestors had never left the continent, the original Homo sapiens that we all descend from. With all of the human remains that predate 50,000 to 75,000 years ago, how is it that none of them were able to go on to permanently populate the rest of the planet? The remains found in Kafze and Skul are unequivocally human, but tens of thousands of years older than when this genetic marker occurred. While other hominin species roamed the planet outside of Africa before 50,000 years ago, the remains at Kafse and School are not to be confused with Neanderthal or Homo erectus remains. These remains were of our own species, dating back to 75,000 years before this genetically recorded out-of-Africa event occurred. But at the same time, the study of genetics is not a soft science or something that uses questionable dating methods. These are well-understood genetic markers that make for a verifiable understanding of not just the entire history of humanity, but the entire history of life on Earth. So how is there a disconnect between what our genetics tell us and what our archaeologists tell us? Despite the hard genetic proof of the L3 haplotype having occurred about 50,000 to 75,000 years ago, there has been found what appear to be human teeth as Far away is China that are at least as old as the remains found in School Cave, over 100,000 years ago. And then in Mislia Cave, only a few miles away from School, a human jawbone with teeth was found to be between 177,000 and 194,000 years old. And then, there is a skull found in a cave in southern Greece, known as Apodema 1, that dates as far back as 210,000 years ago. Pushing the limits of the origin of the human species and implying that humans had been capable of leaving Africa shortly after our evolution into existence. So, Archaeologists have proof that humans left Africa over 150,000 years before our genes claim that we did. The genetic bottleneck that every single non African carries, as well as many Africans too, tells a story of a genetic crunch in humanity, where a Relatively small number of humans, maybe as little as 1,000 to 10,000 adult humans, gave rise to every single non-African today. Scientists' initial inclination was that this indicated that some terrible event occurred during this window 50,000 to 75,000 years ago. Looking into the core samples, a thick ring of volcanic ash indicates a massive supervolcano eruption in Indonesia around 74,000 years ago. A supervolcano eruption within the window of when the genetic bottleneck occurred gave scientists their first suspect on why humans seemed to very nearly go extinct, and because of the amount of ash it released, the culprit wasn't hard to find. Known as the Toba Supervolcano, this was not just another typical eruption like Tambora, Somalis, or Vesuvius all of which were undoubtedly powerful eruptions in their own right. But the Toba eruption is on another scale, which is why it is called a supervolcano rather than just a volcano. Toba is a supervolcano like the one that is sitting underneath Yellowstone in the United States today that has gotten A lot of attention. When Toba erupted, it earned itself the reputation of being the most powerful volcanic eruption of the last two million years. It instantly vaporized 650 miles of rock, enough to cover the entire United States in a foot of ash. Nearly 2,000 square miles of magma was released from under the earth onto its surface, leaving the volcano to collapse in on itself and cover an area roughly the size of Delaware. Today, Toba is a massive lake on a 74,000-year-old Indonesian island that was created by this incredible eruption. The ash-covered skies would have wreaked havoc on climate across the globe, just as other major eruptions in history have. In my book, I share an image where there's a picture taken of Lake Toba, which, when you stand at the edge of it, even up high on the nearby mountains, you can't even see the other end of the lake. That's how large this eruption is. Lake Toba is 62 miles long and 19 miles wide, showing that that was a massive caldera. Maybe this massive event had killed off any humans that left Africa earlier than that. The subsequent plume of ash, 10,000 times greater than the 1980 eruption at Mount St. Helens, would have covered much of the skies over the Indian Ocean between Toba and the majority of humans in sub-Saharan Africa. The wild temperature swings, the massive die-off of life, and disease swooping in for years after to finish anyone else off might have put humanity on the brink of extinction. It certainly seemed plausible to scientists, and throughout the 1990s, the theory that the Toba eruption almost destroyed humanity gained popularity in the scientific community, and even reached mainstream public outlets. Dubbed the Toba Catastrophe Theory, documentaries and articles with bombastic headlines began circulating that entertained the theory. It was a good theory to explain why a genetic bottleneck can be found in most modern-day humans. But if Toba was the primary suspect in this case on why such a small number of humans are the ancestors of the L3 haplotype, the supervolcano also began to look like a high-profile suspect that had a rock-solid alibi things didn't quite match up in a way that put Toba at the scene of the crime, primarily because it occurred at the extreme end of when the L3 marker likely began, with many genetic predictions putting the origin of the L3 marker tens of thousands of years after the eruption. As more research was done, further evidence emerged all but vindicating Toba from being the source of the human population bottleneck, with studies of ancient human settlements in Africa and as far away as India, both not only surviving the Toba eruption uninterrupted, but the sites in Africa indicated an Increase in human activity in the immediate aftermath rather than evidence of a population decline. Piecing together the remains of the distant past can be difficult, with the dunes of time only unearthing some evidence and shrouding others. Theories can change dramatically based on new evidence, and suddenly, long-held narratives take on a whole new dynamic and dimension, especially when we're talking about something that happened 74,000 years ago. And this is where the Toba Catastrophe Theory started to come up against some hard evidence, Core samples studied throughout Africa and right through the Toba line show that, at least for sub-Sahara Africa, the Toba eruption was not as dramatic as the Toba catastrophe theory painted it out to be. Human settlements indicated that there was an unexpected increase in human activity at these sites. If the Toba eruption had been so bad, then why is there more human activity happening around the time of the eruption? While the Toba eruption is the largest eruption of the last two million years, it is possible the climate of sub-Sahara Africa was not significantly affected in the aftermath. While other parts of the world suffered more severely. During the Tambora eruption in 1816, it was famously called the year without a summer. But that was only true to some places in Europe, North America, and Asia, while other places were hardly affected at all. But 74,000 years allows for a wide interpretation of the data. An increase in human activity in these ancient sub-Saharan settlements does not necessarily mean an increase in human population. It's possible that these sites in South Africa found that around the time of the Toba eruption, human activity increased for the same reason that dispossessed refugees of a war create an increase in human activity in neighboring countries around the war zone. An eruption of that size may have wiped out entire food sources, driving people to depend more on each other, as smaller groups were not able to survive as well on their own. It would still be millennia before the first cities would be built, But it may be that the Toba eruption brought people together in greater concentrations and were forced to find new sources of food to survive. Just as it is likely that there was an increase in human activity at Egyptian settlements as the humid Sahara dried up 5,000 years ago, It may be that this increase was one of necessity rather than of abundance. One theory suggests the Toba eruption pushed humanity to eat from the sea for the first time, building our brains with the nutrient-rich fish and shellfish along the coasts, giving us our intellectual edge against other hominins. But even this theory is suspect, as humans had already been seemingly on the path to relying more on the sea and creating more art, a sign of intelligence, about 5,000 years before Toba erupted. Maybe these people were the most successful, and their ranks swelled in the aftermath of Toba's destruction, with their seafood diet contributing to some long-forgotten Sea Age revolution. Only imagination can fill in the gaps on how humans adapted to massive events like the Toba super-eruption and what life during that time would have been like. But today, the Toba Catastrophe Theory is no longer the leading theory to explain the genetic bottleneck that gave rise to the L3 haplotype. Scientists were forced to look elsewhere. Climate change from the deep-season Milankovitch cycles became the next suspect in the lineup on this existential detective case of the origin of the L3 bottleneck. A known recidivist on the trials and tribulations of human history, the Milankovitch cycles seemed as likely a culprit as any. But at first glance, the Milankovitch cycles appear to have their own alibis for not being the cause of the haplotype. Abundant evidence exists proving humans had left Africa for tens of thousands of years before the L3 genetic marker existed. Archaeological sites like Daba and Dwalapuram in and around India indicate humans had settled there as far back As 80,000 years ago, well outside the most extreme origins of the L3 marker. Even more, the evidence shows that these pre L3 non Africans not only survived through the Toba eruption, but continued to flourish afterwards, existing at the same locations for thousands of years after the event. If climate forced humans out of Africa around 50,000 to 70,000 years ago, why did those people both come so near to extinction, and yet were also the only group to go on to populate the rest of the world? These other non-African humans already seemed well-adapted and successful, Tens of thousands of years before the L3 haplotype left Africa. And they even survived through the Toba eruption, in these far-flung non-African locations. So why did this earlier group die out, but the L3 haplotypes thrived? Thanks to Milutin Milankovic and Core Samples, we are able to reconstruct what the climate looked like during the time of the L3 genetic bottleneck that gave rise to the modern non-African human. About 70,000 years ago, or 4,000 years after the Toba eruption, the Milankovitch cycles once again shifted, and the Sahara became dry. Bone dry drier than the Sahara is even today. Even more, the climate became much colder, making the Sahara inhospitable, particularly at night. The climate was able to be studied with core samples taken from the Gulf of Aden, right off of the Horn of Africa, where they used sediment left behind by algae and wax from leaves. Based on the temperature, the algae and wax would change composition, and therefore could provide information about the climate at the time. Not only was the precession not in the optimal part of its cycle for life in the Sahara, but the Earth would have been in the depths of an obliquity winter where the tilt of the northern hemisphere would have been receiving the least amount of sunlight in 40,000 years, and resulting in a massive chilling effect on Earth. If there were ever a time that people would have been discouraged to leave Africa, 4,000 years after the Toba eruption would have been it. Yet. This is precisely around the time that we find humans did leave the continent and give rise to the rest of the global population. The University of Arizona professor of geoscience, Jessica Tierney, who helped record the climate from 55,000 to 70,000 years ago, believes climate played a motivating factor. Tierney says, quote, Our main point is kind of simple. We think it was dry when people left Africa and went on to other parts of the world. And that transition from a green Sahara to dry was a motivating force for people to leave. Quote. Once again, the pump and valve action of the Milankovitch cycles on the Sahara seemed to be at work. Just like how the pump and valve of 5,000 years ago likely contributed to the rise of Egypt, and the pump and valve of 100,000 years ago may have had an impact on the first human structures at Arkhan 8 or pushed the first non-Africans into the Levant, the same could be true here. For the same reason, Perhaps the people of 70,000 years ago spread across the globe to find protection in the unwelcoming colder and drier climate found everywhere. Therefore, the Milankovitch cycles may not have as strong of an alibi as they first may have seemed, making a compelling, primary suspect on the origin of the L3 haplotype. It may be that the extreme colder climate pushed people to spread apart 70,000 years ago for the same reason that it pushed people closer together in Egypt 5,000 years ago. But why would the same climate phenomenon have the opposite effect on these people 65,000 years apart? It may have been that the danger of coming into contact with hostile competition was much lower 70,000 years ago, while 5,000 years ago, organized proto-civilizations lay in every direction and going into a foreign land would have been unsafe. Slavery very well could be waiting for the refugees of Saharan climate change 5,000 years ago, while boundless opportunities for food would have been waiting for those who kept it moving 70,000 years ago. It's true that the people of 70,000 years ago had other hominins to compete with, But by comparison, Neanderthals still wouldn't have represented the same threat as a young Mesopotamian empire. When we consider what could be the cause of the genetic bottleneck to create the L3 haplotype, this unforgiving climate 70,000 years ago does occur at the extreme end of the window for when this genetic mutation occurred making it a possible suspect to the new haplotype creation. But if humans left Africa any later, even 65,000 years ago, that would have been at least 5,000 years of cold, dry desert to cross into an even colder and drier north. At the end of the most recent humid Sahara 5,000 years ago, it did not take an additional 5,000 years to push most people out of the Sahara. It happened in just a few hundred. Sub-Sahara Africa is the original human incubator where the climate remained steady enough to have provided at least 150,000 years of continuous human occupation. If you were caught south of the Sahara as it closed up 70,000 years ago, what would drive you to push through a foreign, cold, and hostile climate into the unknown several thousand years later? These cold and drought-like conditions persisted in the Sahara region for tens of thousands of years and did not turn green again until well after the L3 haplogroup was well on its way to conquering the world. One critic, John Stewart, a professor of ancient ecology at the University of Bournemouth, bristled at Tierney's suggestion, saying that species tend to go extinct when climate changes in an inhospitable way, rather than get pushed out. In one sense, Stewart's doubt on Tierney's claim that climate change 70,000 years ago was the cause of the migration is justified. It's at the tail end of the L3 haplotype window, and it's far more likely that the L3 haplotype occurred thousands of years into a colder and drier climate. And Stewart claims that if a landscape becomes inhospitable, then extinction is likely to occur, rather than a push factor, as Tierney suggested. But Stewart's claim may be a bit of an oversimplification as species adapting to changes in environments, primarily due to climate change, is the main reason why evolution occurs. If environments remained static, it's likely species would remain more static as well. And then there is the special factor that the species in question here is our own not exactly one who has ever taken what nature has to offer laying down. When we got pushed out of the forests, we adapted to the savanna. When we stumbled into foreign climates around the world, we learned to adapt. And when the world became crowded, then we adapted with cities. We are not a species to easily give up in adversity. But how exactly did the climate play a role in the human push out of Africa, if indeed that is the case? If the L3 mutation developed right around 70,000 years ago, it could have been timed perfectly with the familiar drying of the Sahara that seems to have pushed humans to innovate time and time again especially if their green Sahara dried with the same rapidity that it did 5,000 years ago, right around the rise of Egypt. While surely many of those forced out of the increasingly desolate Sahara went south, undoubtedly it was fraught with its own dangers. With the obliquity in its winter, The dry and cold climate would have come with greater scarcity, and the dangers of coming in contact with another tribal territory would have been greater in sub-Sahara Africa. If sub-Sahara Africa has been home to humanity for the previous 150,000 years, then there would have been some well-established, formidable groups in the area 70,000 years ago, particularly as scarcity gave them the strength to prey upon weaker groups that would enter into their territory from the north, desperate and unfamiliar with the land. The only other option would have been to travel northeast, And whether they crossed the Red Sea or crossed through the Levant has been a long-standing debate in the out-of-Africa discussion. The Nile would have offered then, as it does today, a freshwater path from sub-Sahara Africa to the Mediterranean. There was also the route along the Red Sea. Sticking to the shoreline of the coast would have provided a food source and, whether or not this was how the L3 people left Africa, it was likely a strategy they picked up shortly after because the L3 haplotype quickly spread southeast as far as Australia and New Zealand in as short as a few thousand or even a few hundred years. As people followed the coastline out of Africa, along the Indian subcontinent, and into the lowlands of Malaysia and Indonesia, they would have found a wet, warm, and bountiful world. Most of the land that they would have crossed on their way to Oceania is now swallowed by the ocean. As the Earth descended into a Milankovitch winter, it sucked up more ice at the poles and actually lowered the entire level of the ocean so that more land was exposed. In my book, I share several maps that show how much more land was exposed around 70,000 years ago. If northern Africa and the Levant were cold, inhospitable, and dry, then those who pushed along the coast eastward toward India and beyond would have found lush and tropical lowlands filled with life. Thousands of more miles of tropical lowlands would have been exposed to them without needing a single boat. Any ocean trips that needed to be made could be done in relatively short trips. The only problem that gets in the way of understanding these earliest non-Africans is that most of that landscape has now been under the ocean for the last 15,000 years, sinking most of the evidence from this past. But undoubtedly, any group suffering from a cold and dry Sahara would have been heartily rewarded by heading east. It's even more telling that although the L3 group reached Australia and New Zealand almost instantly, their remains would not be found in Europe only a few hundred miles away for tens of thousands of more years really going to show how difficult the European climate was during this time. But our understanding of the mutation rate inside of our mitochondrial DNA is not perfectly precise, and it may be that the migration didn't begin until only 55,000 years ago, which would be fifth 15,000 years after the Sahara became dry. If this was the case, as it is a more commonly cited time frame of when the L3 haplotype appeared, then it would seem that the Milankovitch cycles were not the immediate cause, as the cold, arid climate of the Sahara would have been well established by that point. Even if the migration began 65,000 years ago, that is still far too long from the ending of the humid Sahara to be the precipitating factor to cause a move outside of Africa. Ultimately, there is mixed evidence on charging the Milankovitch cycles as the cause of the L3 mutation. So, is it possible that there was another culprit other than Toba and the Milankovitch Cycles? Due to the lack of evidence, we can only speculate and be open to learning more as it is found. Considering that humans had already been leaving Africa for millennia before, Before the L3 haplotype occurred, it's not unfathomable for a large group of green Saharans to have found themselves locked up on the northern side of the Sahara, living in groups along the Mediterranean, Arabian Peninsula, or Fertile Crescent, as things dried up around 70,000 years ago. While it's true that these areas were not the lush landscape of sub-Saharan Africa, they also weren't the barren wasteland of the New Sahara. Rather than immediately strike out along the coastline and work their way toward Australia and New Zealand, a great many of them might have remained in these areas just outside of Africa, and adapted to the landscape. Without competition from other Homo sapiens, they may have been able to adapt to this new environment. If this was the case, why haven't we found any evidence of these L3 ancestors living in larger groups similar to a Dolni Vestonice settlement? Part of the reason is because Dolni Vestonice existed only about 30,000 years ago, 25,000 to 40,000 years after humans first left Africa. If nature didn't erase all signs of a settlement, it's just as likely that humans did. The Middle East is one of the oldest homes of humanity and somewhere around 900 generations of humans have lived right on top of some of the region's oldest settlements there. Even great cities of a few hundred or a few thousand years ago have nearly been lost to time. The recent wars in the Middle East only compound the problem making it difficult and unsafe for any archaeological work. Then there are the countless generations of people and the endless seasons that lay between now and then, destroying nearly all evidence of a people who did not leave much behind aside from tools and bones to be found. So, if the first L3 humans stayed somewhere in the Levant or Arabian Peninsula, what would have stopped them from immediately spreading east to the endless lush and warm rainforests? The pump and valve of the Milankovitch cycles may have pushed a large enough group north and isolated them in an environment that was much colder and drier than what they were used to. The climate would have been hostile to humans, and one of our strongest evolutionary traits is our ability to be social and work together. It seems natural that as long as there was a location that could sustain a few hundred or thousand people, there wasn't any need to push farther on. Adapting to this new environment would have required all able bodies and a close-knit community that had access to reliable resources in order to be successful, especially since they weren't alone. Out in the wilderness, beyond their camps and caves, lay not other humans but instead, something that was not quite human. Imagining a world where we are not the only hominins living within it is a difficult concept for us to grasp today. The idea that other species that know how to tend to a fire and build tools only lay just beyond the next hill sounds more like to be out of a fantasy book. And yet, these other hominins existed on our planet and sometimes stalked our own ancestors. And they were as dangerous of an enemy as they came. Europe, right across the Mediterranean from the Sahara, was not inhabited by the L3 haplogroup until well after Asia and Australia approximately 40,000 years ago. Aside from the deep reach of glaciers into Europe, there is ominous evidence that it was already dominated by another species. The 92,000-year-old human remains found at Kafse, the 115,000-year-old remains found at school, both of which are in Israel, as well as the 210,000-year-old Apodema skull found in southern Greece, were not the only hominin remains found in these locations. In the Greek cave where the Apodema human skull was found, Neanderthal remains were also found that were 40,000 years younger. These Neanderthal remains gave an Eerie impression that they were the dominant species outside of Africa. If humans were settling outside of Africa for tens of thousands of years before the L3 haplogroup, then one explanation on why they weren't able to survive was because these Neanderthal competitors overtook any human settlements beyond the African continent. Neanderthals could recognize us as a different species, just as well as we could recognize them as one. And it doesn't take much to see Neanderthals convincing each other that the Homo sapiens north of the Sahara were trouble, just as much as Homo sapiens could convince each other that Neanderthals south of the Sahara were just as problematic being the minority hominin in the Other's territory likely made them easy prey. At the same time, there is no definitively clear evidence that Neanderthals preyed upon human settlements either. Where human skulls and Neanderthal skulls coexist, the human skulls are tens of thousands of years older, than the Neanderthal skulls. These are not skulls signifying that Neanderthals came and attacked a human cave. Humans and Neanderthals living in the very same cave may never have laid eyes on the other species their entire lives, the distance in time between them being so great. But what we do know, is that these ancient ancestors of the L3 Haplogroup that were potentially pushed out of a dying Sahara 70,000 years ago, they would have been well aware of these strange Neanderthal cousins prowling the northern climes, as it's likely that they saw them as a danger and a threat. So if drought, a colder climate, and mass migration that disconnected them from their homeland weren't all bad enough. The L3 haplotype ancestors now faced a new hominin enemy in their own territory that could create tools, hunt, plan, and fight. All of these reasons may very well be why they didn't venture too far from one another knowing that they could easily be overtaken by the Neanderthals in a climate that was more suited towards their species than our own. These L3 humans locked out of Africa may have suffered heavy casualties moving to this new landscape and found it difficult for survival. But it was still better than the barren Sahara. With so few humans remaining in a climate that worked against them, their genetic diversity might have slimmed down to only a few hundred or thousand people on the cusp of a total collapse, repeating the fate of so many non-African humans before them. This group may have just been the next victims of the Milankovitch Trap, ready to die out like those who had found their way to kafse, school, Mislia, and apodimia over the previous 150,000 years. In the depths of a procession and obliquity winter, the L3 people were just repeating the extinction cycle that every set of human ancestors had before them. They were destined to die, and the fact that the L3 haplotype exists at all is direct evidence that it got perilously close for them. Traditionally, humans preferred warm and wet environments, while Neanderthals preferred colder and drier environments. This is the reason why humans tended to flourish south of the Sahara, while Neanderthals flourished north of it. Neanderthals were a shorter, stockier, and more robust species, while humans were taller, leaner, and more nimble. Many Neanderthal remains have been found with significant hunting-related trauma indicating that they used close-range methods of attack that put them in the way of physical harm of beasts like mammoths, woolly rhinoceroses, wild horses, and aurochs. By contrast, humans fought in groups that preferred longer-range weapons and tactics and resulted in less death by blunt force. In early interactions between the two groups, the long-range tactics of humans may have been a disadvantage, since Neanderthals might have been more comfortable with direct, aggressive conflict. It is very possible that each of these pre-L3 human settlements attempted outside of Africa came to a brutal end by bold Neanderthal attacks that used brute strength and close combat fighting skills. But unfortunately, the true relationship of war between humans and Neanderthals are not known. So, this small group of L3 humans likely struggled with survival deep in the winters of the Milankovitch Cycles, while Neanderthals thrived. It seems likely that these ancestral non-African humans had to be caught on the northern side of the Sahara for a while, because we know that their genetic pool was dwindling. If the group was south of the Sahara, then their genetic diversity would have likely remained robust, just as it still is today, never creating the L3 haplotype bottleneck that is written into the genes of most modern humans. It's likely that these humans struggling to survive resorted to some inbreeding, to have their genetic diversity decreased to this extent. Critical genes began to go missing from this group around 50,000 to 70,000 years ago. But this does not mean it took 20,000 years to happen. All of this could have happened in a very short time span, perhaps within just a couple of generations but once genes are gone, they're irrevocably lost. Essential genes that humans have had since their origins started to disappear in these lost L3 humans, stuck in the cold, dry northern lands, surrounded on all sides by the more well-adapted Neanderthals. This group would have faced harsh living conditions with real, non-human enemies that their cousins south of the Sahara did not have to face. Without some new form of help, it seemed almost written in the stars that these L3 ancestors, pushed out of Africa by the procession's pump and valve, were about to get the Milankovic chop but the L3 haplogroup did not die off. They bucked a recurring trend that had been happening on the Earth since the origin of our species. Something different happened this time when the Milankovitch cycles tried to kill them off north of the Sahara, and we know that these people who survived had something to do with the Neanderthals. We know that rather than fighting the L3 ancestors, Neanderthals must have somehow befriended them. Within this same mysterious time frame that the L3 haplogroup was losing its genetic diversity, the gene record also shows that it was bolstered again by interbreeding with Neanderthals. While this fact is not usually talked about directly in connection with the human exodus out of Africa, it appears that humans and Neanderthals were interbreeding as recently as 50,000 to 65,000 years ago, and so it's possible that the connection is there. While it's impossible to know the details of what caused this genetic change to occur, it remains the most important piece of evidence in helping us piece together the L3 mystery. This genetic difference between previous humans and the L3 humans is the entire reason we know why humans left Africa in the first place. It was these L3 humans whose gene pool decreased so substantially that it left behind genetic gaps that can be pinpointed to that time. And it was only due to interbreeding with Neanderthals that these same L3 humans were able to replenish their missing genes. So, it's likely that the genes that went missing in the L3 haplotype disappeared through inbreeding, a sign of difficult times, and then were reintroduced later after interbreeding with the Neanderthals, a sign of adaptation. These genes that Neanderthals gave to the L3 group are ones that both Neanderthals and humans shared. But the original L3 genes are only present in connection with paired Neanderthal genes, clearly indicating interbreeding. This means that before the L3 haplotype, all humans shared these genes the same way. Then the L3 haplotype lost some of these genes due to some unknown reason, and Afterwards, these genes were reintroduced into new places on the strand of DNA that identically match what they look like on the DNA strand of Neanderthals. So, climate shifting, a genetic bottleneck, and all L3 descendants holding Neanderthal DNA together begin to bring a vague vision of what could have happened. They indicate that a very small group of humans who were on the brink of extinction had rebounded at some point over 50,000 years ago by becoming closer with Neanderthals. But there is no direct archaeological evidence of these L3 people existing peacefully in the Near East with Neanderthals at this time. We can only speculate about what might have occurred in the missing pages of this book. But there is further circumstantial evidence that they must have stayed somewhat near Africa, at least at first, For example, in the Arabian Peninsula and Eastern Mediterranean, nearly a half-dozen archaeological locations have uncovered artifacts, such as tools made by hominins, but whether they were Neanderthal or human are unknown. It could very well be that the L3 humans had left these tools behind as Neanderthal sites were typically found much further north. It's also clear that the L3 haplotypes made their way back into Africa in large enough numbers that many Africans also became genetically L3. While the Sahara Desert blocked easy travel between sub-Sahara Africa and the Near East, it was likely that people still were able to travel there. The lower ocean levels would have made crossing the Red Sea at its narrowest point relatively easy, and the Greenway of the Nile River was perpetually open regardless of what was going on around the rest of the Sahara. Such trips may not have been easy, but they were possible. But it also may be that the L3 humans only intermingled with the sub-Saharan Africans when the humid Sahara finally bloomed again much later. Either way, this nearly extinct population of L3 people were not only able to survive, they thrived better than any other human group. They may have flourished in such numbers that they became the dominant hominin in the region, adapting to the environment with the genes the Neanderthals gave them, and becoming so numerous that they pushed out in all directions. We know that the L3 haplotype not only penetrated the African haplotypes, it dominated them, taking over the regions in North and Northwest Africa. The key to their success is not known. They may have become experts at relying on the sea, and with such flourishing numbers, they quickly began to travel along the southern coastline of the ocean and make that trek to ultimately reach New Zealand. Along the way, they would have reached India and possibly encountered these pre-L3 humans who lived in sites like Daba and Dwalapuram. If this actually happened. These people who had dwelled in India for tens of thousands of years before the L3 people arrived, they would have no way of knowing that they would have been overrun by this new group. Did the L3 group and the earliest Indians recognize each other as the same species, or did they confuse each other for another group of hominins? Or did it not even matter? Was the mere presence of another tribe danger enough to both groups and only one could win? Or did the L3 ancestors come in peace? Welcomed by their distant cousins, only to have the L3 interbreed so thoroughly with them that they were genetically indistinguishable? Regardless of how it happened, it was the descendants of the L3 haplotype that continued to push on east. Those who traveled the furthest into Southeast Asia ran into another hominin who made their own out-of-Africa trip even earlier, known as the Denisovans. Unlike Neanderthal DNA, which are ubiquitous in the L3 haplogroup and thus most of modern humanity, Denisovan DNA is only found primarily in those who live in Southeast Asia, demonstrating that the Neanderthal interbreeding must have come first. Humans that interbred with Denisovans were only the members of the L3 haplogroup that traveled to that part of the world. Today, the people of Melanesia, the largest island of which is New Guinea, has up to 5% Denisovan DNA. And whether Neanderthal or Denisovan, a small part of them peers out of every one of us that holds their DNA inside, the last remnants that they too existed on this earth. It was the L3 haplotype descendants who preserve these other hominins with them, and yet, at the same time, No one can say whether it was these very ancestors that were the cause of the extinction of these competing hominins. Once they had settled into the land of the Denisovans, the L3 ancestors were ready to conquer the rest of the world. And, just possibly, the love that once bound Denisovans, Neanderthals, and humans together turned to war. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you. to this episode of No Character Limit. Every episode, the sources that I used are located in the description if you would like to check them out. In addition, please consider liking, rating, and reviewing if you enjoyed this podcast as each one goes to help further the reach of this podcast for new people to hear. Each episode requires hours in research, writing, recording, and editing. So if you feel that what you just heard is worth a donation of any size, please go to the description and follow the links for that. Each donation, comes with a free PDF copy of a writing piece of your choice, no matter the size of your donation, and you get a lot of extra features with that, including a lot of the artwork and graphs and pictures, as well as the descriptions that I don't include in the podcast. If you would like updates for new episodes, you can follow NoCharacterLimit at Mastodon.world. And finally, if you have a question, comment, or even a correction, please feel free to reach out at NoCharacterLimit at ProtonMail.com.